Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello everybody and welcome along to a very special inside story. We're at Bentley Motorsport at Crewe and no visit to Bentley would be complete without this. Now that dear listener is the sound of the 2003 Le Mans winner and the V8 engine firing up outside the new premises of Bentley Motorsport. Enjoy. The inside story on the teams, suppliers and circuits. Inside. Well, that glorious sound of Le Mans in 2003 was outside the new home of Bentley Motorsport here at Crewe. They haven't moved very far from where I last visited them. Uh, Great to be... I'm surrounded by speed aids. It's fantastic. We'll talk about that uh, in a moment on this inside uh, story. Uh, First of all, let me introduce the new man at the top of Bentley Motorsport. In fact, no, we'll do it in time-honoured fashion and we'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Paul Williams, Director of Motorsport at Bentley Motors. Uh, welcome to the new place, I suppose. There's nothing better than hearing that Le Mans engine fire up as our entrance to this inside story. How often do you... You, you didn't just do that for me, did you? I mean, you could, you could build me ego now and say, yes, you did, but I'm sure it's not the case. Well, we did time it a bit carefully today to make sure that we could do it while you were here because it's always a, a great experience for someone to hear that sound again of those, um, those amazing cars. So, but, yeah, we have to run the cars quite regularly to keep them in running shape. Um, part of the maintenance schedule as well, we, we keep them running. Um, we use them as well um, as often as we can um, we have various cars we're still able to to run we have a two-seater car that we can take a, a special very very special customers out in and so it's great to keep a piece of our history alive in this way and, uh, and the guys here at the, at the motorsport department really enjoy um, the chance to get those cars running and, and see them go around the track again alongside you a good friend who will say rsl introduce yourself hello i'm tom hodgson head of customer racing at bentley um, the second place car from Le Mans 2003, wearing the number eight, is is sitting just there. Um, I'm delighted that you, that you do still run these cars, because museums, I find, in some ways interesting but very frustrating. Cars are meant to be run when they're run, particularly racing cars are meant to be run, and they're meant to be run in the way that they were designed, I think. And, and if not, you don't honour the people who designed and built them. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And, and even down to the maintenance, you know, at the moment we're going through a lot of fuel tank changes, for example, which we only found out because we, we're running the cars and we, we, we know that to keep them alive we have to do these things. So if you stop, the things get mothballed, things don't get changed, and eventually, effectively, the cars die and it just becomes a static model, and that's not what it is. It's got to be something that's alive, yeah. I've got a chill there, even as you mentioned the word static, static model. How long will you be able to keep those cars going? I mean, that, that's the question that I suppose people will want to know. And how much work do they actually do? We've, we've oh, just fired up again outside. <laughs> we've actually got a really good stock of spares, so uh, pretty much everything that uh, we had from 2003, we've got now. Um, so really, we've, we've got most things. We have got uh, a couple of cars out there in, in the wider world with uh, in customers' hands as well. So we have people that are experienced in running them. So uh, I, I don't see us stopping running them in the near future at all. Yeah. And in terms... In fact, they even predate you here at Bentley, don't they? Yeah, they predate me by quite a few years. I, yeah. Yeah, I joined in 2008, so they, they're you know, quite a few years ahead of me. But, 
you know, always been part of my interest in the brand even before I moved to Bentley and to, you know, to see those cars. I've always loved them. I still think it is one of the most beautiful cars in, in the world. Um, absolutely gorgeous. And to have the privilege of coming every day and seeing them and working with them, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, immeasurable. I remember seeing this when you brought the 2003 winner to Le Mans last year as part of the 100th anniversary, the centenary anniversary celebrations. Um, I look at that car, and if I'm, I'm looking, and we're standing pretty much right in front of the number eight, the second place car from all three, and I look at that car now, and obviously it was it was unusual for its time because it was a closed cockpit car, and everything is closed close cockpit now. You could rule that out at a contemporary racetrack, and it would not look out of place in terms of its design, would it? No, we get we, we always get a lot of interest whenever we show the car. People just love it, and people say the same thing: it looks modern now. I mean, it's, uh, it looked like something from outer space back in 03. Yeah, it, it, it did, but it is, it's just aged so well. It's a great-looking thing, and it, it's absolutely fascinating technology as well because um, you, you can understand every part of it, although it's just so exquisite. You know, we've got an engine down there, and it's, it's, a beautiful, it's a work of art to look at in itself. So. And it, it was challenging the accepted norms back in those days, of course, uh, ran effectively in a class of its own, although it was running for overall as well when it won in 2003, because everybody else had the, the, cl- the uh, open cockpit cars, and in fact it was hamstrung by tyre size uh, back in those days. That was effectively that balance of performance for a car that clearly with a closed top was slightly more aerodynamically effective. Yeah, that was the big challenge with the narrower tyres, and, and actually the programme changed because halfway through we went from Dunlop to Michelin. And um, No, it was an interesting time. Did you hear that? I actually started, so my work experience was in 2003. I started, oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah so I, I, did a, I did a summer placement where I, uh, I volunteered for a summer in engineering, which uh, seems like a long time ago now. It's worked out well though, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> if, uh, if I'd written down my dream job, I'm doing it now, so yeah. Well, you've got to keep setting, setting goals beyond that, of course. I, the other thing that slightly I'd forgotten about, until I stand close to it, is how, quite, how compact... The whole car is. It's not that wide. It's certainly not that high. It's absolutely form and function working together. Yeah, I think the the beauty of a really good car is that it has a, a style to it. Um, and, you know, people have spoken about aerodynamics for many, many years. And that, that relationship between a car that looks good, is good, is, is actually an aerodynamic aerodynamic fact you can see something and you can design something with beauty in it that naturally has a great aerodynamic performance in terms of it being stretching across generations isn't that absolutely bentley though yes it is um i think it's it's part of our heritage as well as a as a as a reborn bentley in the you know in the late 1990s and early 2000s and um, it's something that that you see inside the factory, the absolute passion for the brand and the passion for our, our race program and the passion for our, our race history is something which you find in, in most people yes. in the plant. I've never seen that um, in another car company before, that absolute, that, that the fact that the whole of the company is bought into that, the, the history and the heritage in such a strong way. Well, back in the early 2000s and somewhere, somebody will be able to look it up on our archive at Radio Show Limited, I came to a day here where pretty much the entire workforce was brought out at the start of the racing season and introduced to these cars. It might have been the predecessor to that. Maybe it was all one or all two, but certainly around that time. It is ingrained in, in Bentley. Bentley has always been the driver's choice. Even when Bentley and Rolls-Royce were closely tied, you were driven in a Rolls-Royce, you drove a Bentley. Ian Fleming, a James Bond author, and in fact James Bond himself in the book, there were Bentley drivers and there were, um, shall we say, spirited Bentley drivers as well. And that's always been a Bentley trait. Yeah, and, and that was the point of this programme, really. The idea of the, the Le Mans programme was to reinvent Bentley in its, in its own brand in itself, and, and it really did that. You know, Picking up on Paul's point, uh, when, when we won the race, the colleagues that had been coming in wearing Rolls-Royce uniforms came into the factory wearing <laughs> Bentley uniforms. So it had that kind of seismic effect of really changing the perception of Bentley and, and, and putting Brent Bentley, where, where, as you mentioned, Rolls-Royce and Bentley were so closely formed, it put Bentley really on its, on its own then. So. And re-established it with its original brand values, which is why, why I loved it. Um, that seems an awful long time ago, and yet 
feels some, some, in some ways like yesterday, particularly in the design of the car. And as you get older, time kind of compresses for, for your memories like that. Bentley Motorsport didn't stop at that point. That was the reintroduction of Bentley Motorsport. But prototype racing couldn't go on that way forever. Regulations changed. So Bentley needed a, a, new, a new direction, Tom. Yeah, actually, picking up on that point, we do think we probably could have gone back in 04 and done reasonably well. But um, anyway, that wasn't to be. So we carried on. Yeah, we did, we did uh, several other events. So we did things like ice records. So we took a car, Yuha Kankanen, and we went and, and set a land speed record on ice and, and did, did, uh, did smaller projects to keep us going uh, before the GT3 came along. So. The advent of, of Stefan Mattel, SRO, and the GT3 concept changed irrevocably GT and endurance racing whatever anybody thinks about where it is now or the championships or anything that global formula just seemed to hit the right spot at the right time yeah I think and and we were we were fortunate that we were also in in that crest of the the wave and if you look at GT3 there's no other race series in the world that has so many manufacturers you think about it every manufacturer is in there every premium manufacturer it's great and the fact that it was a balance of performance from the start a balance of performance formula meant that you could take part because frankly it would have been difficult for you guys to compete on any kind of level playing field with the GT with the Continental GT had it not been a BOP formula yeah, for me, a lot of the success of the SRO has been down to the balance of performance. The, the it's job. a dirty word to some people, but in GT3, it works. It, it is, but at the same time, what would you rather? Because, like you say, we couldn't have raced there. When we first came to the FIA with this car, they, they weren't sure we should, we should race, to be honest, with a GT3 car. But the way uh, the SRO works with, um, with the BOP, it's so close. You, know, mm. it, you can be within a tenth and you can be first or 18th. Um, in, in, from a Bentley to a Porsche, it, it, it does work. It, it messed with drivers' minds in the early days. I remember speaking to very good pro drivers who all of a sudden, in the big fields that it attracted, uh, Paul, were, were down in the late 20s and early 30s and going, what's happened? I, I've, never, I've never qualified in 29th position for anything in my life. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a fascinating place to, to go and race. And that... Um, that appearance amongst the different brands and having such a competitive set of, of uh, brands all in the same place, such a competitive set of races all in the same place is incredible. And what we've seen over the last years of being in GT3 is how the, the, the series has become more and more professional, more and more data-driven, more and more um, technical as mm. people have worked harder and harder at actually going racing because you can't just design or pay for a car that is faster than everything else it does come down to actually going racing on the day and who can actually go and race and be reliable um, and a total team effort you've got to deliver in the pit stops and everything as well exactly you can you can win or lose it in a, in a pit stop as you as you saw from our recent race at Bathurst a lot of it came down to the actual last pit stops and how well those went off and that was a, a key part of our final victory yeah and actually time in the brake stops during a very very um unusual intervention by the safety car as it was at, at Mount Panorama um, Bentley and Motorsport then um, people will understand why what I might call series manufacturers volume manufacturers um, go motor racing, it's part of their PR it's part of their advertising programme you guys can sell every car that you build anywhere, so why do you go motor racing? fundamental question, why does Bentley Motorsport exist? so yeah, there's a few reasons. The first thing I think it, it's it's in our blood. If you look at back at the original history of of Bentley Motors, the 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 cars were taken racing originally to prove that they were reliable, to prove that they could do the job that they that they were supposed to do. And and we as Bentley Motors, we we try to cover this massive um, breadth between being a luxury car and a performance car at the same time and to sort of prove those performance credentials amongst a, a big horde of real out and out um, you know supercars mm. high performance cars we have to have a certain level of of performance credential we've got to show our customers that the car is capable competent um, and is it can stand up amongst that 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 crowd while at the same time being a, a luxury car and that's what we try to prove with this arm of the of the company and the weapon of choice originally 
was the Continental GT. And in the Mark I form, I mean, we'd never seen anything like it, Tom, as a, as a racing car before. Um, or we've, heard. Or, or heard, and, and that was important. We've got a Mark I, although a late version of a Mark I, sitting behind us. But one of the things I remember from one of my previous visits here, albeit to a completely different building in a completely different part of crew, it was probably in a different postcode uh, back then as well, was listening to um, Paul's predecessor, Brian Gush, tell me about how you wanted to exploit the, the regulations, so you wanted to go as wide as you could on the front wings, but in doing so, it was part of the design brief of the car to, com- to, to retain the proportions of where the headlights were to each other and the grille. And that sort of attention to detail in racing cars, I don't think we'd ever seen before in terms of upholding the, the styling of, of the Dorna car. Yeah, well, that was really important to us because we wanted to sell these cars and uh, we were going to sell them to rich people who also could have been our road car customers. So yeah, you, you've got to have a guy, you could potentially have a guy who's got a road car there and next to him he's got a GT3 car. So it's got to look like his road car. It's also got to have similar quality to his road car so it can't have big panel gaps or anything like that. So we, we did play a lot of attention to those details and M Sport did a great job with this, uh, this Gen 1 car to make it, uh, make it happen. We'll talk about the Gen 2 cars in a moment because we're surrounded by a variety of, of Continental GTs at the moment. But having moved on now, Tom, to Gen 2, what's, what's the future for these Gen 1 cars? So um, they still get used. They're, they're in uh, lots of customers' hands. So these, these particular cars are cars that we use for, um, for the M Sport um, series and, and around the world. And uh, ultimately, we'd like to get these in customers' hands and getting them used in, in race series around the world. The obvious question would be, and I don't know the answer to this, so genuinely this is why I'm asking it. Given that GT3 is a balance of performance uh, competition around the world, is it beyond the bounds of possibility that somebody could take one of these cars and still be relatively competitive out there in a say a, a national or a regional series if, if not at world champ level yeah i mean there's there's a couple of factors so the homologation is timed eventually the homologation runs out but th- these cars are still homologated but um the real truth is that things do still move on so even with the bmp formula uh, we make the cars easier to drive for example so there's performance out of that we make things more efficient you for this for this series for this year in in the SRO series as a new tire right. so the car the cars um the cars do move on naturally um although you know yes in theory uh, uh, this car could could race and with the right BOP it could win it's in some places in the world um there are championships for previous generation all kinds of cars including GT3s I know there's one in Australia which is um, confusingly called the GT1 championship yeah there are there are a few championships and also in, in the states as well there's, there's lots of car clubs you know s- circuits have, uh, have their own clubs as well so. what was the first year of the Gen 1? so that was 2013 um, it, won't, it won't be long before this falls into a, an historic category. I remember how quickly the Audi R8s were out in the States running in historic. Yeah, um, but there's, you know, there's not that many of them. We only built 27. This is actually chassis number 26 in front of us. Um, so, so there's not that many of them here, and they're, they're quite, a, quite a precious commodity. When you moved on to, to Gen 2, then, Paul, and, and the second iteration, that obviously followed the road car. Um, which had been massively updated. All right, the running gear, the engines, all tried and tested. Um, what sort of um, iterative process then goes into moving on the race car when you've got a new model of a road car? And how much work did that mean for, for motorsport? So the important thing, as Tom said earlier, is that there's this direct link between the, the road car and the, and the race car. And so when we went to the next generation Continental, um, we, of course, had to nearly start with a clean piece of paper. But yeah. you start with the, with the body of the road car and you build your race car off, off the back of that. Um, obviously, we carry engines through from generation to generation. And so we've done the same thing in the, in, in the race car in, in taking the engine, evolving it further. So 
what the, the Generation 2 car really was, was an optimization and an improvement. It's called an evolution step of that, of that car, taking the engine further down, further backwards. Um, we went to a different gearbox, which we had some improvements from, getting the weight distribution of the car um, that much better, going to a nearly perfect 50-50 distribution. And then, of course, doing a, a, an aerodynamic package um, that matched the style of the of the the road car as well, and that's a, a very effective way of showing that the the road car can live in this performance environment. And, and let's not be shy about this. Um, the the cars uh, had to go through a weight loss uh, program. They, you put them in the gym, yep. Gen One and and the Gen Two car. And there's actually quite a lot of carbon on these cars. Yeah, there is a lot of carbon. Um, we have we have quite a lot of work to do, particularly on the body shell. But we um, you know we we're we're well below the weight limit, so a Gen 2 car we run at 12.75 kg, mm-hmm. um, and so we we put ballast in for BOP, and we're, you know, it's one of the main questions that frustrates me, and occasionally when commentators mention it, um, that we're not heavy on the racetrack, no. you know, we're we're uh, we're we're bang there with the with the other competition. So. But what you can't get over is it's a big frontal area on this car and and you know the weight is one is one thing and as you say that's part of the balance of performance but there's a big frontal area but you've almost always made a um if not an advantage you've tried to minimize the disadvantage that that's given you and try to make that work for you yeah of course we do have a big frontal area there's no getting around that but um, we optimize that as much as we can and we and in fact it's not just the frontal area it's the whole size of the car the whole the whole thing is bigger that so can you make a virtue out of that necessity? Absolutely, yeah. You think about the floor. So for us, uh, particularly on a Gen 2 car, the floor is actually more advantageous uh, aerodynamically than the rear wing. Yeah. So we've got a bigger area of the floor. We've got, more, we've got more downforce. And what that gives us is a car that's very, very stable, particularly high speed. Um, high speed circuits are our, uh, are our favourite. Um, and, and that's because of the size of the car and the downforce we're able to generate. And it's quite long between the wheels as well. So that gives stability. Yeah, it does. Um, so we it gives us stability it also helps us with tyre um, tyre wear so we tend to be good on our tyres uh, it also uh, an, an offshoot of that is that it makes the car nice for gentlemen yeah. drivers so um, some of our competitors are really on the limit and it's and it's a difficult car to drive tyre in that yeah and, and, and ours is it, ours is a more benign car it's easier to get to that limit uh, well, there's a Gen 2 car down here let's, let's walk down and it's, it's not just any old uh, Gen 2 car this is the uh, Blancpain Sprint Championship winning car from 2015. Uh, sorry, it's oh, another. This is another Gen One. My apologies. Yes. Yeah. So this is the this is a championship winning car. So this is the ultimate iteration of Gen One, yeah. effectively. Yeah. And this this is uh, this is actually a car that we as Bentley Motors want to keep forever. And uh, it's another part of your heritage fleet. There. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Vince Abril jumped on the bonnet of this car in 2015 when they won the championship, and uh, it did did very well and surprised a few people with uh, with the team there. Uh, he was teamed up with Maxi Book, of course, to in, in that championship. How much changed then during the life of the Gen One car? Because you were allowed updates, weren't you? I know it's a BOP, and you've got a basically the BOP in GT3. For those of you who don't know, it's not like you have a, a set of technical regulations and a box to build the car in. The homologation and the technical regs is you bring the car, you present it, it's it's benchmark tested for performance, and then the technical passport that comes with the car means that every nut, bolt and washer has to be exactly the same every time you bring it. But you are allowed a little update in the, in the life of the car. Well, it is, it's actually very difficult. So we're allowed to do things um, where a road car part changes, for example. But if we want to do actual real performance changes, you have to go with an Evo, which, in fact, we did look at for this mm. car and we came up with an Evo package. But we decided that it wasn't worth um, making our customers effectively have to buy a big expensive spares package mm-hmm for them to then get BOP'd again. So in this instance, we decided the car was good enough as it was and um, it carried on its life and it's pretty much its original form. Now, whilst all this GT racing has been going on uh, around the world, Paul, Bentley have not forgotten their pioneering Bentley boy spirit. And I'm going to walk back down this way now because we've kind of done this in the wrong order, to be honest. But I I wanted to talk about the GT3 cars to to start with because this is a car down here that I remember very well uh, from Pike's Peak a couple of years ago. And this is a perfect, for me, example of of that pioneering pioneering spirit that mentioned from, from Bentley. Um, as everyone knows, all big major premium manufacturers have to have some kind of 
uh, SUV, sport utility vehicle, or um, luxurious utility vehicle, I'm sure you would call it, uh, as, as ben, Bentley, or maybe premium utility vehicle. The Bentayga is that for Bentley. I have to say, I've always thought they were a handsome beast and hide, hide their bulk very well, but there's no getting over it. It's a big car. And you chose to go and break the road car record at America's Race to the Clouds at Pikes Peak. Now, I would love to have been in that meeting when that was decided, when somebody thought that was a, a good idea. We covered it when you did it. I mean, is, is that just Bentley? Are we looking at Bentley encapsulated in this car in terms of, of, the, of the thought process, if you like, from Bentley going way back to, to its early days 100 years ago? I think absolutely. There's a there's a sort of essence that runs through the company about doing the things that are perhaps a bit unlikely, a bit uh, a little bit crazy, a little bit different. There's this um, there's this pioneering spirit about going and competing somewhere where probably you you aren't expected to be, or somewhere where maybe some people think you you know where you shouldn't be. And weird challenges. I mean, if those again who know Bentley history, the blue tra- train car. People always talk about that. You mentioned the ice. Uh, land speed record that you did and I mean literally going to the top of the mountain with this one yeah I think that part of that is in, in when the Bentayga was was launched it's very clearly a, a luxury car mm-hmm. and um, it's not so obviously if you look at it from the outside it's not so obviously a performance car as a GT is and so you know in order to demonstrate that this car has the the performance that is that is necessary to 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 live up there with some of the the quickest SUVs in the world. We, you know, we we we, we took the choice to go and to go and prove that. And so, um, Parks Peak is great because you take what's fundamentally a standard a standard road car. You put a roll cage in it, and uh, you know it's got a standard 12-cylinder engine. Mm-hmm. And um, the level of performance this car this car provides, you know, together with things like the the anti-roll system and the yeah, that's the, the very clever 48-volt active anti-roll bar system. Effectively, that I'm I'm, I'm sure I am absolutely dumbing that down even by describing it as that but it's a monitoring the car and and basically controlling the pitch and yaw of the car millions of times a second yeah that's absolutely right it, basically it's it's a roll bar um, that's fitted both front and rear axles that basically puts torque in the opposite direction to to what the car is is rolling so the the effect of that is that when you're you're cornering the car at high speed this normal heavy body roll that you get with especially with an SUV just isn't present in this car it almost feels like it's leaning into the corner mm. and the net result brings the, it effectively brings the center of gravity down doesn't it effectively yes and the, the 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 amount of sheer cornering performance you can get out of the car with that is 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 uncanny if you drive it quick on a mountain pass it's it's unbelievable so when you, you know when you kit it out like this with a roll cage and uh, you know strip out some of the interior stuff it becomes an absolute beast to drive and it's still UK registered and I can tell you you may not believe this but at Pikes Peak it wasn't left anywhere. It was driven back to the digs of the mechanics every day on the road, on road tyres. And when Reese Milne took it up the mountain and broke, didn't break the lap record, actually. He smashed it into smithereens uh, in time, or the, the, the hill record, should I say. He never even took it out of drive, Tom. He, he, I noticed he never took his eyes off the road either, because you look either way and it would scare you witless. But he never took it out of drive, never used the paddles even. No, no, it's, uh, it, it was quite great to watch. I watched it on board and it's uh, quite, a, quite an amazing thing to watch him do it. I mean, Reese is a great driver, but we, um, we did a lot of simulation before the actual event and we, uh, we were pretty much spot on with what we thought we were going to do and, and how much we broke the record by. It was an amazing day. I'm, I'm so pleased I was there that weekend uh, to see it. And I really like being at altitude because you lose weight really quickly if you go on a diet. It's magnificent stuff. Um, you're listening to an RSL special programme. It's uh, one of our inside stories. We're at the new home of Bentley Motorsport uh, in the Bentley Complex at Crewe. Um, very important, I would say, Paul, that Bentley and Bentley Motorsport, the roots are here in Crewe, a lot of local people work here, there's an awful lot of local pride, and whilst I know that you've got M Sport up in, in, in Cumbria there, Malcolm Wilson's team, who are doing a lot of the development now for the, for the cars and, and running some cars for you, the home of Bentley Motorsport is at Crewe, and it's part of Bentley Motors. Yeah, that's absolutely critical for us. It's always been a, a part of what we've believed in as, as Bentley. Whenever we are, are working on a new car, whether we're working on a, you know, a, a new GT3 or whether we're working on something like a Pikes Peak um, special, one of the things we always do is that we engage the people from the, the main um, 
you know, production car development, from logistics, from finance to be part of that process. And so we mm. second people into the motorsport department to be part of that that uh, that development and also even when we go and, and run the cars we often have volunteers from the factory who will come and and, and work with us um as i saw on the pikes peak uh on, on the pikes peak project yeah absolutely and, the, yeah. and there's guys you know from all areas inside engineering you know calibration specialists um, chassis specialists we will get them into the team and make them part of of, of what we do and they they absolutely love it it's 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 part of being uh, you know a bentley person and uh, it's really important to us that that the motorsport is part of what we do, not just something which happens uh, somewhere else. The Pikes Peak project didn't stop with this Bentley, though, Tom, uh, the Bentayga, because you took, you took a crack at a, a, a record for road-going SUVs that you thought was attainable, but you weren't happy with that as Bentley, and then motorsport decides to go and take uh, the coupe record. Now... People might say, ah, well, the SUV record, okay, maybe I can see why you, you did that. It, it stood for quite a long time. But the road-going coupe record was held by a very well-known German performance manufacturer who have cars with engines in the back. And that's what you were putting yourself up against with a, with a front-engined road car, up one of the stiffest tests in the world. And so the Continental GT had to go and follow in the footsteps of the Bentayga. That was some challenge. Yeah, I have to say uh, this one was a little bit closer. So from from uh, from all the simulations, you didn't honestly know you could do it till you actually tried it, did you? No, it, it was it was a bit like that, to be honest. Mm. It, and and if the weather had gone one way or we'd made a mistake with the driving or anything, it could have been that close on this one. So it really was uh, really was a bit closer. But it again, as as Paul was saying, it, it shows off the sport and pedigree of the road car. It's um, it, it really was a great car, and it, and um, and it smashed the record. So. And Reese Millen can drive up there actually with his eyes closed, he tells me. He also tells me it's more dangerous now that it's fully paved than it was when it was gravel, because at least you could pitch the car sideways and scrub off a bit of speed, whereas now, if you miss your turning point, there's a 3,000-foot drop. Yeah, I actually watched a documentary last week about uh, Pikes Peak, and it was saying that... uh a lot of people think that it's more dangerous now. Also interesting why they actually paved it. It was down to uh, the supposed pollution of the dust rather than anything yes. else. I was, I, was, I was fascinated by that. Yeah, very, very good. It, it, it has changed the uh, character of the race to the clouds. It hasn't changed the challenge. In, in fact, as we said, it's probably put it up a bit. Um, so another Pikes Peak champion here. Uh, and if we move down to the, the latest iteration of the Continental GT that you guys have turned out. We're back to cold weather. I, I, I do see a bit, a bit of a theme going through these. The race to the clouds where it can be snow at the top and close on freezing when it's 20 degrees at the bottom. The ice racing world record and now uh, an ice GP car. What's, what was the thinking behind this one? Well, this is a really interesting challenge. So it's something um, that... Uh, was started with Porsche a long time ago and, and hasn't happened for a while but um, they've, they've kicked off the race again and, and we decided that it's something that we absolutely must take part in um, so we built this, this great car here with the guys in Bentley Motorsport and, uh, and went out and, uh, and yeah we went and competed and it's a beautiful blue colour uh, this car it's sitting on standard road tyres at the moment I presume it had ice tyres on when, when it did it Tell me you competed with the roof bars and the ski rack on the top. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we had to do that. I mean, the, the part of that, uh, that weekend as well is, is some ski yachting where you tow a skier behind the car as well. And we have a, we, we have a, a connection with bomber skis as well. And um, it was a great chance for us to, to show off those skis and show off the car. So, yeah, we fitted it with some roof racks and we got some, some lights in there to help with the, with the darkness. And we got a set of skis in the roof and... Uh, it, it looks amazing, and um, yeah, we had a great time on the weekend. It was fantastic. Same weekend as Bathurst, actually. Yeah, I remember. Yes, I remember watching the the results coming in. I was watching it's at ZLMZ, and I remember watching some of the footage uh, coming in. Um, uh, is it? It's Patrick Pele is quite involved in that. I, I seem to remember from Porsche, and I, I remember talking to him about it at, uh, um, in the states a couple of years ago, and thinking. Well, I need to get involved in that somehow, but it always clashes with Bathurst or it's around that area. These are lovely projects and they create, let's, let's be honest, they create a lot of column inches and they're a, they're a, they're a nice engineering and, and motorsport project. But your bread and butter here 
is now, particularly now, is selling GT3 cars. Yeah, absolutely. So our, our focus is very much switched to, to GT3. We've got a really big GT3 programme, the biggest we've ever had here in Bentley Motorsports. So certainly now the, the, the guy's focus is on um, looking after all those GT3 customers and those cars around the world. Yeah. Now, we're in you know, what I would describe as a fairly normal motorsport environment. You've got rooms, you've got car bays, you've got plenty of places to do stuff with cars. What I don't see, other than uh, out front and the, the Le Mans engine, I don't see any engine rebuilding here. Where, where does that all happen? So we do actually have the, the base engines here, the base road car engines, but uh, the actual race engines are built at M Sport up in Cumbria. Right. Yeah. And, and how often, if I buy a GT3 car and want to go racing in British GT, how often does that engine have to come back to you? It doesn't, actually. So for three years, um, for unlimited mileage, you, we, you keep the car and the engine together. Um, you have to make sure it has all its fluids and it's looked after properly. And, and, and you, you haven't know, over-revved it. Over-revved it and all those sort of but things. Presumably but you can see that from the ECU. Can we you? can, yeah. So we have we have the data watching all the time. Um, but no, we, it's a bit of a unique position that we look after the engine for th- for three years and limited mileage um, with our GT3 car. It's all right. Okay, three years is one thing, but unlimited mileage. So literally, I could go and do a full season of IMSA, pick off you know Bathurst, do the twenty four hours at Spa. So even after the twenty four hours of, of Spa, you don't recommend a rebuild. No, no, we don't. Re- we don't rebuild the engine. So and if you do want to do that, John, I'll, I'll get your contract out before you leave. I'd have to win the lottery uh, this weekend. Um, how can you be so confident in that? This is a racing engine that is being put under... Sh- I mean, GT3, fast cars now, very fast cars. The Nürburgring, they're within 10, 15 seconds on the Nürburgring of the fastest lap that was ever put in in racing by Stefan Beloff at 6.11. And when you do the N24, take off the, the bit when you're on the Grand Prix circuit, they're doing... 625s around there these are rapid cars yeah absolutely but you have to consider that we we know the road car engine better than anyone else we've tested that to absolute extremes and and we use most of those parts in the in the engine the base engine is road car based so we know what all those parts can do um, and, and we know how far we can push them and we're absolutely confident in the engine it's been it's been absolutely brilliantly reliable um, and that's why we can stand by it with such confidence. I'm not aware, Paul, of any other, well, any other manufacturer or supplier of engines. Let's put aside the fact that you supply the whole car. I'm not aware of any other supplier of race engines in any category who gives a three-year unlimited warranty on, on the motive power unit. No, I think it's, it's because of the, the close link between the road car and the race car, as we said. And you've come from powertrain, so that must make you very, very proud. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was you know, part of the development of the, of the V8, and we originally put it into the GT after, you know, after the original GT was launched. And uh, you know, we do a huge endurance program on that with um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours at high power never mind you know just the the 24 or the 48 we're talking about hundreds of hours on on the test bench at full power so on the test bench i was going to say you, you can't you can't even the more spirited driver of a bentley on the road you surely can't compare that with what you get at bathurst or the spa 24 or any of these other long endurance races your gd3s do no, but in terms of a in terms of a sign-off program or an engine to make sure that it is bulletproof in the hands of the customers, both in the road car and the race car, we do a huge amount of, of work on the test bench to make sure it really is robust. And the, the road cars are sitting at 500 and something horsepower, same as the race car. Yeah. So there's not that much difference between the performance levels you can get in both the cars. I'm now, you know, as soon as I leave here, I'm going to be on the web looking at AutoTrader for lightly used, pre-owned and pre-loved Continental GTs. Now that now that I've I've, I've heard that. So that, a lot of that technology is coming from the road car to the race car. Is anything fed back then the other way in terms of, of the absolute high pressures that you guys are, are putting on the engines and other road car components? Yeah, we, we, have, a, we have a process where we have feedback of information in, in both ways. And um, one of the ways is what I spoke about just now is that we always involve the people from the road car development in the development of the race car. Um, and so that naturally happens in that in that conversation and that mutual development and you know we've had feedbacks both ways things like brakes we've had improvements on the on the road car brakes from some of the learning inside the 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 gt program and so these are things you can feed 
um, backers and forwards. Another one is in fuel tanks, you know, fuel tank behavior, fuel pump behavior under high, under high load conditions. Again, a benefit we've put into the next generation GT and in the learning that goes with that. So, yes, there is, um, there is this cross-pollination between the, the race program and the road car program, and that's very useful when you're developing um, high-performance luxury cars. I think WO would approve, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think he'd want to go and race one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. Big year, 2020. We're standing at the, st- the start of the bulk of the season. Um, M-Sport have already been out there successfully uh, and, and cracked Bathurst, which I know is one that Malcolm and the rest of the guys up there and you guys here wanted to tick off, which now obviously means you've got to go back and defend because it's never been defended. Um, big year, as I say, for you guys. What... What are we going to be seeing from Bentley uh, and Bentley Motorsport on the track? I think, um, first of all, you see a big spread, and that's, that's going to be really interesting. Lots of customers doing things different ways and, and us in championships all over the world. So we have never raced this much as a brand, and, and you'll be able to see us with different drivers, different teams, people having their, their, own, their own setup ideas and all those different things. So I'm fascinated to see how the year plays out massive massive increase in how many cars you've got out there um you've not quite doubled it but you're not far off no we're not far off we've we've um we we have increased it a lot that's um that's on the back of successes like Bathurst. People, mm. people want to be involved with... Does literally the phone ring? Or is it, is it win on Monday, sell... Win on Sunday, sell on Monday in the race car business? For me, yes. So, right. so I'm the guy responsible for selling cars. And for me, I got direct phone calls and emails. Wow. Um, we, we have a, a sort of an, an open email on our Instagram. And from that, I got direct leads. In fact, I'm talking to one guy now, which uh, for a car in Asia that directly came out of the uh, at the win in in Bathurst so absolutely so going back to the early years when WO had to be persuaded that customers racing his lovely cars was a good idea and then immediately cottoned on to the fact when he went to Le Mans and thought thought oh hang on a minute we can use this so that that's the same nowadays that that is literally you guys are out there with at the very top of the Bentley Racing Tree with M Sport, and that is a mobile advertisement for everything Bentley and everything Motorsport. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's the real thing for us is that Bentley customers, whether they're teams or individuals who you know want to buy and race our cars in the type of Pro Am series, they're bought into the brand. They love the brand. They want to be part of the brand. Mm. And um, you know, our our job is to is to give them that experience at the at the far performance end of, of mm. Bentley and. Uh, you know the, the ability to have the car at home with a road car and go and race it again um, on the weekend, recognizing directly that there's an absolutely tight link between those two those two beasts is a, is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing, and it's it's great for our customers to see and feel and experience that. There was there's a crack and photograph that's going around, which I'm sure you guys have seen, of around about a 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, Open Bentley. Um, I don't think it's a blower, um, towing on an open trailer, a 962, to classic events. That happens. I mean, it's, that is the ultimate iteration, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was a great picture. We actually did something similar. Where we towed the, uh, towed the race car behind one of our cars. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it was great to see that. I really love seeing that. And um, Actually, the last time, last time I drove to Le Mans, I was in a, I was in a modern Continental GT and went past a, a three and a half litre, so it's it's always great to see that sort of thing. In terms of then this explosion in customer cars, clearly an important part of the next stage, if you like, Paul, of, of Bentley Motorsport, but you've got to support those people and you're still a small organisation compared to some of the other manufacturers who have gt3 products out there and who have therefore as a bigger manufacturer in the oem market have a a bigger um uh representation around the world yeah we've been we've taken a very call it measured approach to this year though we've had a huge increase we've been very careful about targeting that in a number we believe we can support correctly and also targeting it at people who we believe we can can work with and link to the brand and, and actually make part of our, our family. So, yes, we've, we've um, spent some time in the back end of last year and early this year um, you know, working with potential customers and um, you know, selling some cars and signing up some deals with people, but really targeted it at a number that suits our brand, that, um, 
that helps maintain the exclusivity of that and um, that we know we can actually support in the right way through this year. New GT3 regulations aren't that far away. You obviously have to keep across that. That is your premium product uh, as motorsport. Presumably, like most people I've spoken to about this, not a lot of people need a lot of change in GT3. No, there's not a, there's not a huge amount of change um, coming over the next few years. There are certain things that you have to, you have to keep on top of and certain regulations that will, will require some change to the car. Um, of course, we've got to keep pace with the road car as well, so that link between the road car and the race car almost must, uh, always must be, must be in place. But um, that also helps customers. You, know? you don't want to buy a car that then becomes obsolete inside you know, a year or a year and a half, and that's a, that's a great thing for GT3 racing to know that you've got something which is stable into the future and that you can continue to race for a couple of years it's a that's a good part of it and long product cycles as it's called in the oem world that's something that actually has worked very well for bentley down through the years even right now with the road cars as well you only have a gt3 product as your customer facing bentley motorsport offering at the moment can we foresee a time when there could be a could you build a gt four on it would you build a gt for it gt3 i'm not sure where a gte rather i'm not sure where that's going so i'll leave that to one side uh, at the moment but you, you haven't got an entry level if you like it's coming to gt3 and get cracking lads yeah i think there's because of our our product range we have as road cars as, as well is that the only logical car you could base a gt4 off is fundamentally the same car we don't have a a a large palette of road cars you could say right this is the natural gt4 and this is the natural gt3 etc so um you know our choice has been to to focus on one thing and do it as best we can rather than trying to to force something into a place which doesn't necessarily mm. suit it so um it's always attractive to have a gt4 car because it's a it's a great entry level point for people who'd like to get into gt racing but at the moment our our, our emphasis is to get you know the right number of customers support them well have great success um, you know, with the right people. It's a period of flux within international endurance racing at the moment. And I know Bentley and Le Mans are synonymous. There is an opportunity for Bentley to use one of your fantastically engineered and superbly reliable and longevity-ridden engines and stick it in the back of the new generation LMP2 and go racing in this new LMDH bit of hybrid technology in there which everybody's embracing now as well is that something that you have to keep at least uh, one eye on? Look, there's such a, a heritage of, of Lamar inside Bentley as a brand that it's something that is that is we, something we regularly consider it's never a year or even a month goes past where we aren't thinking very hard about whether that's the right thing for us for us to do and uh, where are the considerations is it a business case that has to be made for this so there's obviously there's a number of, of aspects to that the, the the cost of racing at that highest level is not insignificant so that has to be a part of it it has to be something which makes absolute financial sense to a, to a company like Bentley you also have to have the the technology and the the rules and the you know the sporting regulations that allow us to demonstrate our brand in the best way and for Bentley an absolute um, critical point is that we're not prepared to go racing in a in a in an arena where we do not have the possibility of an absolute yeah. win we do not want to be in a, a second class or a third class yeah. um, if we do something like that it must be in the absolute um, race for the for the top step of the podium and so it's something we consider frequently and the the direction that's going at the moment it's had a rocky a rocky road the last couple of years but the direction that it's going at the moment makes it more and more interesting for us and so yeah we'll keep an eye on it we don't have a a, a program running at the moment but it's always something we're considering and we you know we're thinking about it all the time and we're investigating and studying and simulating and so we'll, we'll keep our eye on it and it could be something that could be a customer program in fact that those set of regulations are almost designed around people building cars at a reasonable cost and getting them into championships and races all the way around the world which is the the absolute epitome of original bentley racing and customer racing can can you see potentially you guys making a case for that because people like to buy and race bentleys yeah absolutely um i think i think for me that's the most interesting part of these new regulations that it could it could open up a a, a different world and then that obviously helps with your original business case so it it, it can kind of go full circle i'm sure there would be customers particularly u.s based customers I'm, i'm sure we could get cars out there um but that 
it relies on on the whole package working and and um, and us us making a success of that. So uh, yes, I do think there will be customers, and I'd love to sell them a car. <laughs> Great stuff, uh, Paul. I'll finish with you if I may. And first of all, thank you, gentlemen, for your for your time uh, today, and thank you for starting up that lovely lovely Le Mans winner um, I don't really care whether it was due and a diary card had come out today or not I'm still very honoured that that happened while we were here um, Bentley have not shied away from challenges in the whole of its now more than 100 year history Paul where do you think we might see a Bentley pop up next are there still other things that you guys can do that will challenge not only you but as I suspect all of the things that we've talked about with the Pikes Peak cars and the Ice GT car challenge people's perception of what Bentley is in now 2020 yeah, the, the, the big challenge we have, and same as all other motor manufacturers, is the challenge of, of becoming more and more sustainable. And this is something which is an absolute um, critical aspect of what we, what we want to do as a brand. And if you, if you look at what we've done over the last number of years, just starting with the plant and getting you know, the biggest um, solar farm that you, can, that you can find in the UK, we are putting a lot of effort into, into the sustainability of our products. And that is something which motorsport has to do as well. And so, well, can motorsport actually help there? Because... Um, very much people look at motorsport it's an easy target to oh look at you guys you're burning fuel for fun and all that kind of thing but we're innovating motorsport and and also the amount of time in terms of development time has to be very short yeah and I'm absolutely passionate about this I think motorsport should be the ones we should be the ones knocking on the door so you know a lot of the time we use control fuels well why couldn't we use a control innovative fuel instead mm. of a instead of a conventional fuel this synthetic fuel yeah exactly those sort of solutions we should be the guys actually breaking those barriers and um just sticking to what we know now isn't isn't going to move us forward and it and it, it will kill us off as a as an industry if we do that so i really passionately believe we we need to be looking at those sort of things. You should have seen how he lit up when I was talking to Paul about it. You, you are very passionate about the, the fact that that... And it's a story. It's not just the fact that we do it, because we've done it in motorsport down through the years many times, but the, sometimes the story doesn't get told, Tom. No, and I think, I think the world's changed now, though. You know, the world has changed. It's, it's got a lot more focus on it, and um, I think this is a perfect forum. This is what motorsport could be in the future. We could be the testbed for how we actually solve this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, pure electric isn't necessarily the, the solution. So it's not 100 percent of the solution because it won't work for everybody. Exactly. So, so you use this forum to move yeah. things on. Yeah. Um, it's been a, a brilliant uh, time that I've spent with you here. Thank you very much. Welcome to your new home. Thank you for welcoming me here. I suspect that we'll be back here uh, in the relatively near future to find out about some uh, new projects that are going on. Tom. Paul, thank you very much indeed, and best of luck to Bentley and Bentley Motorsport. And let's hope we're still, well, we won't be around talking about it in a hundred years' time, but let's hope somebody is, eh? Yeah, thank you very much for your time as well. Lovely to hear from you. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.